0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I've been asked tonight to speak about the question, does God exist? And I will devote some attention to giving an argument sourced in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas for answering that question in the affirmative. But I'm going to spend about half of the lecture talking about the question, does God exist? Um, Sort of preliminary things, you know, what it would mean to answer the question, what does the question mean? Um, So the lecture is going to be split kind of in half between kind of preliminary treatment of the question, does God exist, and then a very quick introductory overview of one of St. Thomas's arguments for the existence of God. All right, so I think it's safe to say that we can all agree that if there is any distinction between big or great questions and small questions then the question does God exist is going to be among the very biggest of questions. Now we think of questions as big or great for several reasons. Sometimes a question is big because of how fundamentally its answer might impact our understanding of the world or how its answer might provide a principle for answering other questions. We might say that this is a big question in theoretical or scientific terms. Sometimes, though, the question is big because of how much the answer to the question matters to us, or how much the answer to the question might impact the way that we live. Such a question is great morally or existentially. And sometimes we call a question big just because of how difficult that question is, or because of how much disagreement or discussion there is about that question. As we, may, we might say that right now, a certain question in a given field is a big question, just because it occupies the attention of so many researchers or inquirers. Finally, sometimes a question is big because answering the question well presupposes our answers to many other questions, so that answering the question quickly or briefly is quite difficult. And I would suggest the question, does God exist, is a big question in all of the ways that I've just mentioned. Much of how we understand the world depends on our answer to this question. The answer to this question matters greatly to how we might live It is not an easy question to answer, at least by philosophical reasoning. There is, in fact, much disagreement and discussion about this question, and something that I should note right before a 40-minute lecture, answering this question fully is impossible in a short time. To adequately and fully answer the question of whether God exists, taking this as a question for philosophical reasoning is just more than we can do in 45 minutes. Now, some of the biggest and most fundamental human questions are not only difficult to answer, they're also difficult to understand or to articulate clearly. Many times, apparent disagreements about the most important questions that human beings have arise because the people disagreeing are not, in fact, asking or answering the same question. They understand the force of the question in different ways. And this is just to say that it's very easy for human beings to talk past one another. And often it's just as important to attend to trying to understand what a question is asking as it is to consider the arguments that can be made for or against a given answer to that question. Okay, it's for this reason that I'm going to give, as I said, about as much attention this evening to talking about what the question of God's existence is asking as I will briefly, to providing an overview of how one might argue for God's existence. I'll primarily approach the question as a student of philosophy who thinks that God does exist and that God's existence can be rationally proved. In what follows, I'm going to draw very frequently on the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Of course, this is the Thomistic Institute Um, I won't be constantly citing texts of Aquinas, but what I'm going to offer is in line uh, with his way of thinking. Okay, the paper is actually going to be in three sections. So first, I'm going to talk about the meaning of the question, does God exist? Second, I'm going to talk in a general way about how one might argue that God does exist. And then third, I'm going to present in brief fashion, one of St. Thomas's most famous ways of proving God's existence. Um, And then finally, at the end, I'll say a little bit about what philosophical proof that God exists. uh, I'll say a little bit about what that has to do with faith in the God of Jesus Christ. All right. So first, concerning the meaning of the question, does God exist? What should we take that question to be asking? We can begin by comparing two other instances of existence questions. So let's take these two examples. Did Julius Caesar exist and do black holes exist? In the first case, we ask about whether a particular individual human being existed, namely the human being we might describe as the consul and dictator of Rome, who was stabbed by senators, including his friend Brutus, on the Ides of March, 44 BC, which is coming up soon. In the second case, we ask about a certain general kind of thing, what a philosopher would call a universal kind or a common nature. So when we ask do black holes exist, we're not asking about some particular thing, we're asking in a general way about a common kind or a universal. And we ask whether there are any instances of such a kind existing in the world. All right, taking these first two questions about Julius Caesar and black holes, Uh, Which of these two questions is the question, does God exist, more like? Well, this depends primarily upon whether we take the word God to be a proper name, like Julius Caesar, or a common name, like black hole. Now, the name God is often regarded as being like a proper name. We use the name God to pick out one unique being. Um, In English, uh, you know, uh, when we write in English, we capitalize God when referring to God. We also frequently use the name God as a term of address in the second person. We say, oh, my God, as we would say, hi, Peter. And we refer to God in the third person in the way that we would refer to a particular person by a proper name. We say God answered her prayer, just as we say Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. By contrast, although Christians also capitalize the word Lord and use Lord as a term of address in the second person, you can say, O Lord. In the third person, we say, the Lord, with the definite article. We don't say, the God answered my prayers. Instead, we say, God answered my prayers. So it seems, at least from the way that we use the word God in ordinary English, it sure seems like the word God is a proper name, that it's more like Peter or Julius Caesar, a name picking out one unique individual rather than naming a kind or a nature. But if God is taken as a proper name in this way, it's going to significantly affect the way that we think about a proof or an argument that God exists. Generally speaking, it can be harder to prove that a particular individual exists or did exist than it is to prove that there is at least one instance of a nature or a kind. At the very least, the kind of evidence or argument given for the existence of a particular individual will differ from the evidence or arguments given for the existence of a kind or nature. To take our example of Julius Caesar... The description of Caesar as the consul who crossed the Rubicon, etc., forms the target that any evidence must support. And so that description of Caesar determines the sort of evidence that we will consider in favor of his having existed. In this case, the only sort of evidence available to us um, uh, for his existence um, is testimony of various kinds. To ask whether Caesar existed is to ask whether there was someone who led an army across the Rubicon, became dictator, and was murdered in 44 BC, and we answer that question through available testimony by historical sources. With enough common testimony and independent historical sources for the basic facts of Caesar's life, facts belonging to our description of Caesar, we can be confident that he existed even if we are in doubt or are in fact incorrect about certain details of his life. So, for example, Caesar almost certainly did not say in Latin et tu brute, uh, but he might have said in Greek kaisu technon. By contrast, it's because black hole names a common kind or a universal that it's possible for there to be arguments for the likely existence of black holes as a kind of thing defined in a certain way from equations in physics. To reason that black holes likely exist on the basis of theoretical physics, such that we expect to observe them, or rather to observe their distinctive effects, is not to reason immediately to the existence of any particular individual black hole. Having reasoned that it's likely that black holes exist, then we can consider the possibility that particular astronomical observations are best explained by the presence of a black hole, like the one asserted to exist at the center of our galaxy. Now, without entering further into details for either of these different cases, the case of Caesar or the case of the black hole, the central point is this. It's going to make a tremendous difference whether you intend to prove the existence of an individual or you intend to prove the existence of some instance having a kind or a nature. And so the question about the question, does God exist, is which kind of existence question is this? Okay. So now we can talk about how one might prove that God exists. And to answer that, we have to answer what kind of existence question is, how does God exist? Now, despite what contemporary English usage suggests, the more classic view historically, and the view reflected in St. Thomas's usage of the Latin word deus, the word for God, the more classic view is that at least when it comes to proving God's existence philosophically, God should be treated as a kind name, like dog or human being or black hole, rather than as a proper name, like Fido or Peter, even if we hold that there is and can only be one God. So we do sometimes in English express the question of God's existence in this way as, is there a God, right? Is there a God? And this formulation is really a more accurate articulation in English of the philosophical question that St. Thomas is asking, in the article containing his five famous ways of proving God's existence. The question he's asking there is whether there is a God, whether there is a divine being. Now, St. Thomas's philosophical question about the existence of a divine being is not, however, the only way in which one can ask the question about God's existence. Many of the reasons, and much of the best evidence, that motivate an individual's belief that God exists are not so much about proving the existence of a being with the divine nature. They are instead evidence or reasons to believe, for example, that the God of Abraham, the God of Jesus Christ, the one who acted in the world in many particular ways and revealed himself to us, exists. Especially when we're talking about the sorts of um, evidence and motivations that many individual believers have for their belief, things such as spiritual experiences of grace, experiences in prayer, mystical experiences, or the witnessing of the miraculous as reasons for believing that God exists. This is just to say that on the personal level, most Christians are committed to the existence of God as a matter of belief including belief in the works that God has performed and does perform rather than fundamentally as a matter of rational philosophical proof. The reasons to believe that God revealed himself in Christ and offer salvation through Christ are not matters of strict philosophical proof. And so if the question is, does the God who became incarnate in Christ exist, this question will not be answered by philosophical reasoning alone. That is, reasoning that is not itself dependent upon belief in divine revelation. Now, I am going to focus in the remainder of the lecture on philosophical reasoning concerning the existence of a divine being. Okay? Uh, but, you know, Christian Catholic interest in this question Right, um, needs to, to recognize the distinction between philosophical reasoning and what it can accomplish, right, and the more complete reasons that an individual has for believing in um, the God of Christianity. Okay. All right. With that qualification, though, the philosophical question, is there a God, is for St. Thomas a question that in itself is really preliminary to faith in divine revelation and in all of the particular deeds that Christians believe God has performed in the world. In this regard, St. Thomas draws a distinction between what he calls the preambles of faith and what he calls the mysteries of faith. So preambles of faith are truths pertaining to Christian teaching that can in themselves and in principle be proven philosophically. So for St. Thomas, the existence and the uniqueness of God are his most frequent examples of such preambles of faith. By contrast, the mysteries of the Christian faith are truths such as the Trinity and the Incarnation. According to St. Thomas, such truths are known only by virtue of divine revelation and the gift of faith, we are given the ability by grace to know these truths which surpass the capacity of human reasoning to prove or to comprehend. Okay, but in calling the existence of God a preamble of faith, in saying that it's something that can be proven philosophically and that is therefore in a way prior to faith, prior to uh, belief in revelation, St. Thomas does not mean to say that each individual believer must first rationally, philosophically prove God's existence before believing in Revelation. In fact, St. Thomas clearly asserts and recognizes that most believing Christians believe in the existence of a divine being and in the uniqueness of the divine being by by the assistance of God-given faith, just as they also believe by the assistance of faith that this one God spoke to Moses, became incarnate in Jesus Christ, and so on. Rational consideration of attempted philosophical proofs for God's existence may help us to pave the way um, or remove obstacles from one's acceptance of grace and the gift of faith. But these arguments can do so um, Um, even if one does not, strictly speaking, demonstrate beyond all doubt that a God exists. So that's to say one might follow an argument for the existence of a divine being well enough to conclude that it seems reasonable to think that the existence of a divine being can be proven, or an argument could just succeed in being persuasive. Just as I might follow what a physicist says well enough about black holes for it to be reasonable for me to be persuaded that black holes likely exist, even if I can't reproduce all the details of the argumentation, can't respond to all of the objections, or clarify all the likely confusions, etc. Okay. So this is this is important because it's a it you know touches on what can we expect to accomplish in you know a short lecture and in a very short sort of overview of an argument for God's existence. Okay. All right. So as I turn now to talking about how St. Thomas thinks we can argue philosophically for the existence of a God, of a divine being, please keep in mind that the immediate target in this discussion. Is not a strict demonstration beyond all doubt that a divine being exists. Now, I am going to be sketching an argument that St. Thomas thinks is such a is a successful, rigorous demonstration that God exists. Um, but um, it's not on the basis of just sort of a cursory right presentation, right? Um, uh, that uh, that it would have the force of, of a rigorous proof. Okay. All right just a couple more preliminaries before we talk about a particular Thomistic proof for God's existence. I've already indicated that if we are going to take the word God as a kind name rather than as a proper name, then we are thinking about a divine being in terms of some sort of definition. Just as, you know, black hole is thought about in terms of some sort of definition supplied by uh, physics. If we're thinking about the existence of a divine being, we have to do, we have to think about this question in terms of some sort of definition, some sort of formula containing some properties or characteristics that we attribute to a divine being that explains what we understand the word God to mean as a kind name, just as three-sided plain figure is a definition of triangle and two-footed talking animal might be a definition for human being. Here, though, there's more than one candidate for what we might mean by a divine being when we try to prove that one exists. And although there are several other candidates for what we might mean by a divine being, for example, um, in the thought of St. Anselm, by a divine being by God, we mean that greater than which none can be conceived. Okay. Um, when it comes to uh, what's going on in St. Thomas's argumentation for God's existence, um, there are really two candidates, two ways of thinking about what the definition of God is that's at work when he's asking the question of whether, um, whether God exists. And we, so we can distinguish these two approaches. One of these approaches is what's frequently now called uh, classical theism. So in, in popular um, discourse, apologetics discourse, if you hear reference to classical theism, this, the, there's an approach associated with um, advocates for classical theism. Um, I'm going to, there's a second approach though, that I'm going to distinguish. Um, and just to make clear that I do think it's in fact, St. Thomas's view, I'm going to call that the Thomistic approach. So this is one, there's a little bit of a gap between the typical approach of uh, advocates for classical theism and, uh, what I think we find in St. Thomas. All right. On what I'm calling the classical theism approach, we take the definition of God. That is the target of a proof for God's existence to include all of the classical divine attributes, especially omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence, so the omni-attributes, as they're called. All right, so that's the classical theism approach. One not infrequent objection to St. Thomas's Five Ways, which argue for the existence of an unmoved first mover, an uncaused first cause, an absolutely necessary being, and so on, is that it's not at all obvious why the god proven by these arguments is the god of classical theism, that is, a god with all of these classical omni-attributes. And many critics of St. Thomas in both popular and academic works will devote all of their attention to St. Thomas's five arguments for an unmoved first mover, an uncaused first cause, and so on, without giving any consideration to what St. Thomas does in the 24 questions that follow the five ways in his Summa. In those questions, St. Thomas goes on to offer philosophical arguments that a divine being that is a first uncaused cause must be absolutely simple, supremely perfect, the highest good, infinite in being and goodness, omnipresent, absolutely immutable, eternal, unique, omniscient, loving, just, providential, and omnipotent. So if by a divine being, and you, when you ask the question, does a divine being exist, if by a divine being one explicitly means a being that has all or most of these divine attributes, then proof of God's existence is not fully accomplished by St. Thomas when he's presenting his arguments for God's existence until the end of question 26 of the first part of the Summa Theologiae. This is some 250 pages later in a modern edition after St. Thomas is offered what he calls the five ways of proving that God exists. Okay, so if not the definition of God in terms of what's now called classical theism, then what is the definition of a divine being, that informs our consideration of the question, does God exist? What does St. Thomas mean by a divine being when he gives an argument for God's existence? As my friend and collaborator, uh, David Twetten has argued, the definition of God that's operative in St. Thomas's five ways is instead something like this. So this is what God means when you give an argument that God exists. God means something that exists above all things Which is the principle or the source or the cause of all things, but is removed from all things. Okay. And um, that was, that was a direct quotation from St. Thomas, who after he gives this formulation adds, quote, this is what those who name God intend to signify. Okay. So something that transcends all things is the cause of all things and is removed from all things or is unlike all other things, is distinct from all other things. Uh, there's a theme that St. Uh, Thomas is echoing here. It's, it's called the threefold way of, of Dionysius, the ways of transcendence, causality, and negation. Okay. Um, so it's those three elements, he thinks, that enter into what we mean by God. Okay. Okay. This is um, rather more general, Okay, a little bit more open-ended than, a, than saying that the meaning of God is right, a being with all of the sort of classical divine attributes. Okay. All right. Now, in St. Thomas's Five Ways, he claims to prove the existence of an unmoved first mover, an uncaused first efficient cause, an absolutely necessary existent that is the cause of existence for all other things a supreme and most perfect being that is the cause of existence for all other things, and an intelligent cause of the ordering found in nature. Each of these five formulae corresponds in structure to the definition of a divine being that we just gave. So each of these ways of characterizing God and the proofs for God's existence, each of these would count as something existing above all things as their principle but removed and radically distinct from them, okay? But it may not, and in fact it should not, be immediately evident that a first unmoved mover or an uncaused first efficient cause must be the personal, omnipotent, supremely perfect, provident creator of the world. Again, St. Thomas devotes some 250 pages in a modern edition to proving that a first uncaused efficient cause must have all of those divine attributes. Okay. Okay. All right. So, this is just to say that um, if we're treating the question, does God exist the way that St. Thomas treats it? Okay. Um, there's a little bit less accomplished in the arguments given to answer that question by itself. Okay. All that we're establishing is that there is some sort of supreme being that's a cause for other things and is radically unlike the things that it causes. Okay, that's what an argument for a divine being looks like. That's what it accomplishes. All right. With all of those preliminaries and with an understanding of what St. Thomas's philosophical proofs for God's existence are supposed to accomplish, I can give a brief explanation of one of St. Thomas's five proofs that a divine being exists and I'm going to focus on St. Thomas's first way, uh, the famous argument from motion, which St. Thomas himself says is the first and more manifest way of proving God's existence. Okay. Now St. Thomas describes the argument from motion or the argument from change as the more manifest way because the fact of motion or change is so obvious to us so the first claim that he advances in this argument is that quote it is certain and evident to our senses that in the world some things are in motion okay and before we go any further with the proof it'll it's necessary to say just a little bit about what thomas takes this to be saying okay it is evident that things are in motion Um, So let's take, as an example, just a water bottle going from here to there, okay, as an example of motion. It is evident to us immediately, there is no ground upon which we should doubt that there are in the world things in motion, that things go from not being a certain way to being a certain way. Okay. Thing, the water bottle goes from not being over here to being over here. Okay. Okay. Or that something first is not and then it is. Okay. So um, all of the five ways that Saint Thomas puts forward, they are um, they take as their starting point some very general um, he takes to be fairly obvious feature of the world. Okay. Um, something that it would you know, be very strange to deny, and especially in the case of the argument from motion. It's the fact that things change, okay? It's the fact that first things are not one way, and then they come to be that way, okay? All right. St. Thomas then asserts a principle which he proceeds to defend at some length. The principle is this, whatever is in motion is moved by another, okay? So if we're taking this as our example of change, there's the very obvious mover in the background, okay? Um, but he advances as a principle, whatever is in motion is moved by another. Whatever is undergoing this transition from not being a certain way to being a certain way is always moved by another. Now, St. Thomas's defense of this principle, which he takes from Aristotle's philosophy, articulates what motion or change is and what it is for one thing to be the mover of something else in terms of some fundamental notions from Aristotle's uh, Metaphysics and Philosophy of Nature. These are the notions of potentiality and actuality. Um, In brief, sort of first-pass introduction if you haven't encountered these notions before, Act or actuality, we can first say, is what exists now. And potency or potentiality is what can exist or what is able to be. Okay. So actuality is what exists. Potentiality is what is able to be. Okay. So the example we gave before of emotion, we would say more than just the water bottle is not over here, and then it is over here, we would add to this account that before the water bottle is actually over here, it was potentially over here, okay? The water bottle is able to be over here, okay? And motion or change generally is understood by St. Thomas like uh, following Aristotle as involving Something going from potentially being one way to actually being that way. Okay, all right. So far, so good. Okay. So St. Thomas thinks this way of thinking about motion or change is um, uh, very clear, very you know, very intuitive. Things can be a certain way before they are that way, and if you if you didn't admit that the water bottle can be over here, then you could never explain how it comes to be over here. I mean, this is very basic, right? Um, and uh, in St. Thomas's mind, there's not, there's not a lot of ground for disagreement, okay? Okay, with this, with this way of thinking about motion or change, okay? All right, so it's a central Aristotelian philosophical claim that what we've just called potency or potentiality is a real feature of the world. It is a way in which things exist. It is a way that things are. My ability to learn Russian, okay? Uh, I've given that as my stock example for a long time. I'm, I'm confident I'm never actually going to learn the Russian language, okay? So I always give it as an example of the potentiality. But that I can do that. That's a feature of the world. Right. So the, the way that the world is, is not just what actually is. It includes all the things that are potentially. Okay. Okay. So this is a, a foundational claim for Aristotle, what we can call the thesis of the reality of the potential. Okay. Now it's not to confuse the potential with the actual, right? The potential is not actual, but the potential is a real feature of the world. Okay. All motion, again, involves the passage from a state of potentiality to a state of actuality. What changes goes from being potentially such-and-such to being actually such-and-such, as water goes from being potentially hot to being actually hot, as the water bottle goes from being potentially over there to being actually over there. As St. Thomas puts it, quote, Nothing is in motion except insofar as it is in potency to that to which it is in motion. So when the water bottle is, is moving, it's potentially over here. Okay. It is in potency to that to which it is moving. Okay. By contrast, a thing is a mover or a cause of motion in as much as the mover is somehow in act potentiality alone is never an explanation of motion it's not because just because things can be a certain way that motion occurs it's always because something is actual in a certain way that motion occurs as it's because my hand is actual in a certain way right that causes the motion of the water ball Okay, so St. Thomas tells us then that what it is for one thing to move another is for it to reduce that thing from potentiality to actuality. And he uses this to argue for the claim that we just mentioned, uh, that whatever is in motion is moved by another. He argues as follows, quote, something cannot be reduced from potency to act except by some being in act, as fire makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot. And here we come to St. Thomas's critical claim. Quote, it is not possible that the same thing should be at the same time in act and in potency in the same way. For what is actually hot cannot at the same time be potentially hot, but is at that time potentially cold. It is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way, something should be both mover and moved, or that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be moved by another. All right, so this is the most difficult part of St. Thomas's proof. Uh, Much would need to be said to explain and defend his reasoning here, defending this thesis, whatever is in motion is moved by another. The example that he provides, actually hot fire, making potentially hot wood to be actually hot, might make it seem as if St. Thomas is saying that one thing can only move another if it already actually possesses the characteristic that it brings about or actualizes in the thing that's being moved. But that's not what St. Thomas means. Instead, what he means is this. If a thing is in motion, its potentiality, its ability to be in some new way, is being reduced to actuality. And this can only occur by virtue of some actuality possessed by whatever its mover is. And the actuality by which this potentiality is reduced to actuality has to be distinct from that potentiality, okay? okay. In other words, all that's being excluded by St. Thomas's argument is this, that a thing in potency should reduce itself to actuality only in so far as it is in potentiality. The mere fact that the water bottle can be over here cannot be what accounts for the water bottles coming to be over here. There has to be some actuality distinct from the potentiality of the water bottle for being over here. Okay. So if something is in motion, if potentiality is being reduced to actuality, that is, if what can be is coming to be, then there has to be some actuality distinct from the potentiality in the thing that moves and distinct from the actuality that that thing achieves through its motion, okay? So in order to account for what's happening right now, it has to be the case that we've got three things. We've got the potentiality of the thing that moves, that undergoes motion. We've got the actuality that it achieves and we've got some other actuality, something that is actual in some way, and that actuality has to be distinct from the ability to be over here and actually being over here, okay? So uh, this is, it's fairly abstract, okay? It's very general, it would apply to any example that we could give of motion or change, but we need those three things We need the potentiality of what undergoes motion, the actuality of what is moved, and some other actuality, okay? That's what Thomas means when he says, whatever is in motion is moved by another, okay? All right, so, so far, I have summarized very quickly that St. Thomas has argued for two claims. First, certain things in the world are in motion, And second, whatever is in motion is moved by another. So what we have is the claim that for each thing in motion, each thing whose potentiality is being actualized, there must be a mover, a thing whose actuality is distinct from that potentiality and distinct from the actuality produced in the thing having that potentiality. Okay. But what of the mover and its actuality? What of this second actuality that we've identified as the source of motion? What if this actuality is itself the actualization of a potency, the result of the things having been moved? That is, what if A is moved by B and B is moved by C and so on? So St. Thomas next considers this question, and the next premise of his argument is that such a series of moved movers cannot go on to infinity. That is, there must be um, a first mover for any series of moved movers. Now, the simplest way to explain St. Thomas's reasoning for this claim, so this claim is that an infinite regress of moved movers is impossible. The simplest way to explain this is to note that in a series of moved movers, where A moves B, so that uh, B moves C, so that C moves D, and so on. So you can think of a series of, of train cars that I can just you know, represent on the board. A moving B, moving C, moving D, okay? The question is, could this sort of series regress to infinity such that there was a prior mover for everything moved in such a series, okay? And the most important thing to recognize in order to understand why Thomas rejects the possibility of infinite regress is to note but in a series like this, so think, again, of like a series of train cars or just a series of objects, you know, pushing one another. Um, D depends more upon B than it does upon C for its being moved. OK. OK. So, again, um, you know, if you're thinking of like a series of train cars or me just pushing a series of objects. OK. The thing that's moved later depends more upon the mover that's prior than upon the mover that's closer to it in this series okay okay because um, C is only moving D in so far as it is moved by b right, and uh, B is moving c only in so far as it's being moved by a okay. So we can say D depends more upon A for it's being moved than it does upon B or C because A moves B, so that B moves C, so that C moves D. That is, what is moved depends more on a mover that is prior in such a series than on a mover that is posterior. So what is moved depends most of all upon the most prior mover. So if there is not a most prior mover, then neither what is moved nor any of the moved movers in between would in fact have their motion accounted for, okay? So think of it this way. Let's take the case where we're not talking yet about the infinite regress. We're just talking about this series if you, as it were, lop off the most prior mover, all the motion stops, right? Because B is only moving C insofar as it's moved by A. So if you take away the most prior mover, you've taken away all of the motion in the series, okay? Well, Thomas, on Thomas's view, you're doing exactly the same thing by positing an infinite regress of moved movers, your what that is what it means to say that there's an infinite regress of move movers is just to say there's not a most prior mover. So you're doing the same thing right by lopping off a in this series when you say there's no first. okay? If you take away the most prior mover, you take away all of the motion in the series. okay? okay? So for this reason, St. Thomas concludes that if there were no first mover, a mover that is not itself moved in such a series, then nothing would be moved at all. So in order for there to be moved things at all, quote, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other. Okay. And then he adds, and this everyone understands to be God. Okay. Okay. So, again, um, something transcending other things that's a cause for other things and is unlike them. A first mover put in motion by no other. Okay. All right. As I said before, it might not be obvious. In fact, it shouldn't be obvious immediately that a first unmoved mover has all of the attributes that we attribute to God. And again these attributes are what the next 250 pages of the Summa Theologiae are intended to prove. But St Thomas proves everything that he says about the divine being philosophically from his being a first unmoved mover and a first efficient cause. To give just some indication of how St Thomas gets the lengthy process of proving all these divine attributes going um and that's also making clear why a first unmoved mover is a transcendent radically distinct cause that exists above all things, we can consider the very first conclusion that St. Thomas draws in the next article of the Summa Theologiae. From what St. Thomas has argued in this argument from motion, he already has everything necessary to conclude that the divine being is purely actual. That is, that the divine being is not a being whose actuality is the actualization of some potency, okay? As we would say, the water bottle's being here is the actualization of the ability to be here that it had, okay? If God's actuality were that sort of actuality, well, then that actuality would require a mover, in which case. Um, the supposed first mover wouldn't be the first unmoved mover. Okay. Um, so Thomas uses this line of reasoning to conclude that whatever is the first mover, the source of motion for all motion, right? In, in you know, every example that we might give of motion, the first mover put in motion by no other must be something that is pure actuality. Not something whose actuality is the result of the actualization of some potentiality. Okay. Um, At the very least, this indicates why. Um, the first unmoved mover would have to be radically unlike anything that you know through the senses, anything bodily, anything right that you encounter every day, because it is one of the general features of uh, the world that we observe through the senses, that all of the things that we observe are subject to motion and change. They have potentiality. They can be this way or they can be that way. Okay, But God is pure actuality, actuality that is not the act of any potency. Okay. That is, it is not that God um, is because he first can be, he simply is. Okay. And this is um, why St. Thomas sees in the name from Exodus 3.14, right? The name of God is he who is, right? He thinks this is the supremely proper name for God in a certain way. Okay. Um, Because God is purely actual. Okay. All right. That was the quickest summary imaginable of the, uh, well, maybe not the quickest imaginable, but it was a very quick summary of Thomas's argument for motion. Okay. Um, I have not considered objections. I haven't considered, you know, um, all the things that could be said. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap up and then um, I will stick around and do Q&A as long as people would like. Okay. Okay. So, and I do want to hear, if people have encountered the argument, if you have objections, anything I said didn't make sense. Okay. But this was just sort of first past presentation of the argument for motion. Okay. All right. Um, just a few uh, final remarks. So this has been just a very brief presentation of one of St. Thomas's proofs for the existence of a divine being in his Summa Teologiae. Countless articles, dissertations, and books have been written to critique and defend each of St. Thomas's five ways. So, of course, I can't say that in a brief lecture I have adequately demonstrated that a divine being exists, but I have indicated in brief one of the ways in which St. Thomas thinks that such a philosophical demonstration can be made. All right, to bring things to a close, I want to return to something, um, to saying something more about the relationship between reason and faith and the role that argumentation for God's existence plays in a life of faith in the God who became incarnate in Christ. For St. Thomas, one of the most important scriptural witnesses concerning the relationship between reason and faith is given in Romans 1.20, in which we read that, quote, ever since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. So um, our ability um, to know God's eternal power and divinity through creation. So although St. Thomas thinks that our ability to reason well has been wounded by sin, it is nevertheless possible, even if difficult, to reason to the existence and the attributes of God from the things that God has made. Because we can argue for God's existence, it is therefore also reasonable to believe in the possibility of divine revelation. Understanding of the world leads us to God. But importantly, St. Thomas thinks that philosophical reasoning ultimately concludes that God infinitely exceeds our understanding and comprehension. And so to know God intimately, we depend upon his revelation of the mysteries of faith and upon the grace by which he unites us with himself. In the theology of St. Thomas, then, philosophical reasoning concerning the existence and the attributes of God is not an end in itself. Such reasoning is at the service, ultimately, of the praise of God and the contemplation of the deeper mysteries of the Christian faith.